0: Good morning, my name is Joe McKechnie and I am so blessed to be your pastor here at Chapel Roswell, welcome to Chapel Air, if you flew with us last week you knew we made it in for a safe landing, I always want to remind everybody that your pews will be used in a flotation device if in fact we have an emergency. And speaking of emergencies, if we have one, or in lieu of a bad sermon, we also have exit doors to either side. So you may need those sooner than later. We are wrapping up a two-part series entitled, Come Fly With Me. Remember, Frank Sinatra had a song called, Come Fly With Me. It seems like we always have kind of a musical flair or a musical theme as we do gather together as the body of Christ, as the community of faith, I want to begin by going to prayer together. And so, this morning, I'm going to invite my wife, Catherine, to come up, and she's going to pray with us, if that's okay with you. So, Catherine, I'm going to invite you to come up, and she's going to pray for us this morning. I just
1: want to quickly say before um, we pray, I did uh, as we were singing one of those last songs. I just saw um, all these chains being broken in the sanctuary just off people's lives. Uh, I saw addiction being um, broken and God having victory over that. I saw victory over stress and worry and anxiety. And also unforgiveness, those of us who have been holding on to um, something in our heart where we were not able to forgive. I saw the chains of forgiveness being broken and the Lord just celebrating as we were all singing. And so I just wanted to encourage you, if that spoke to anyone in here, if that was you, you can um, thank God for that and celebrate what he's doing. So, Lord, we thank you for your movement. We thank you for this place. God, may this uh, the rest of our worship time not be about us but be about you and what you're doing and God we thank you for your great unending love and may we always know that it's not about what we've done but it's what you have done on behalf of us and not because we earned it not because we were good enough not because we were smart enough but just because we are your children so today may we just celebrate being your child That we are all a child of God, no matter what we are, no matter matter where we've come from. That we belong. We matter. We have a purpose. You've given each of us God assignments that are just for us to carry out in this world, to carry on your name. So God, we thank you for that. And Lord, we just ask for your forgiveness for just our self-reliance and thinking that we can do it on our own. Um, And we can't. We need you. God, we Need you so our hearts cry out to you this morning, saying, "We can't do it on our own." We admit that. We humbly come before the cross, thanking you, thanking you, God. So, Lord, may you uh, your name continue to be honored as we continue to hear your word, and may it transform our lives so that we can go out into this world and be the people that you have designed us to be. So, we call that forth in each of us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you. Let me take you back to the early 1900s. Grantland Rice is a name that maybe some of you have heard of, most of you probably haven't. Grantland Rice was arguably the greatest sports writer in an era of tremendously great sports writers. In 1904, Grantland Rice was the sports editor for the Atlanta Journal. He was known for his poetic prose, for his descriptive narrative. In fact, it was Grantland Rice who wrote these words. Uh, We've kind of transliterated them a little bit, but see if this sounds familiar. For when the one great score comes to mark against your name, he writes, not that you have won or lost, but how you played the game. He's the one who used the term the four horsemen. It's a term from the book of Revelation in the Bible to describe the powerful Notre Dame backfield. But there was a point early on in the career of Grantland Rice in which his reputation was almost shot beyond recognition. Let me take you back there. You see, he was working at the Atlanta Journal, and one day he received a letter in the mail. He opened the letter. It was signed by a baseball fan in, from all places, Augusta, Georgia. This young baseball fan in Augusta, Georgia was singing the praises of this young baseball stud who played for the Augusta minor league baseball team. Now, in several other cases, letters and letters and letters would come in, boasting about the athletic prowess of this unknown baseball star in the making out of Augusta. Grantlin Rice received a, a lot of letters like that, but truthfully, as quickly as they came, they were quickly forgotten. But as often quickly they were forgotten, another letter came in from another fan, another adoring fan, about this young baseball phenom from Augusta. Now this time Grantland Rice received a stack of letters from minor league baseball fans from Anniston, Alabama of all places. It seems that this baseball player From Augusta, he played on two different teams, one in Augusta, one in Anniston. One a southeastern league, minor league team, the other a South Atlantic league team. These letters were coming in describing the awesome prowess of this amazing, tremendously gifted and talented minor league player. The letters heralded this player as the next major league superstar, And after getting so many letters, Grantland Rice decided that he was going to finally put pen to paper and he was going to write about this young player in one of his columns. He wrote, a new wonder has arrived, a darling of the fans. And Grantland Rice, he decided to take a trip to Augusta to meet this young player about whom he had written. His instinct seemed to tell him that this guy was going to be a rising superstar. He was about to break in a legend. He was going to be in on the ground floor of this guy, superstar in the making. When he got there, oh my goodness, when he got to Augusta, he was shocked. He was disappointed. He was even a little bit angry because he learned that this player who had been raved about in dozens and dozens of fan letters was nothing more than a scrawny little farm boy with a low batting average and only one stolen base. It was then that he put two and two together. You see, all of those letters that were written to the Atlanta Journal were actually written by the player himself, (laughs) using a wide array of fictitious names. There weren't dozens or even hundreds of adoring fans there was just one fan, and he was the player himself, writing all of those flattering remarks. Journalist Grantland writes, felt so humiliated for heralding this young player. But, but, but you know what? The next season, that player did have a breakout year. He had a pretty good year. He had another season that was for the ages right after that. You see, this minor league player with a fan base of but one, turned out to be a guy named Ty Cobb. He faked it to make it look like he had all of these fans singing his praises when in actuality all of the letters were written by himself. Why did he do that? He was so confident that Grant Lyd Rice could give him his big break. The following year, Ty Cobb, like I said, had a breakout season, and Grantland Rice looked like the most prophetic baseball writer of all time. Sometimes things, though, aren't always as they seem. You and I know that. We, we recognize that in our daily lives. Sometimes our instincts are wrong. As we talk about our faith, very often our instincts certainly are wrong. They're wrong about other people, or maybe our instincts are wrong about God, or our instincts are wrong about the circumstances or the situations in which we find ourselves. But when we're talking about aviation, when we talk about come fly with me, pilots are actually, believe it or not, trained not to trust their instincts. Rather, pilots are trained to trust their instruments. We'll look at a a letter from 2 Corinthians, a letter written by Paul a little bit later, 2 Corinthians chapter five. But but here's a a deep, common question that is asked a lot, not only by Christians, but by non-Christians. Why are we here? What do we live for? What, what good do we encounter in this world? Why, why are we alive? Why did God put us here? There are times of crisis, let's face it, that we go through. We feel them maybe very strongly at this present hour. Many people are are hurting or they're troubled by a, a bleak look of the future, whether it's in the nation or in the world or maybe within your marriage or within your family. And so I want you to notice how Paul puts it as he introduces this passage that he's writing to the Christians in the city of Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, So we are always of good courage. That's what he writes. So we are always of good courage. Again in verse 8, we are always of good courage. That note has been sounded again and again throughout this passage. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul writes, Having this ministry by the mercy of God... We do not lose heart. In verse 16, he says, so we do not lose heart. So there's this element of this optimism, this positive thinking that Paul is speaking about when he's writing to the Christians in the Christian city, or the Christians in the city, rather, of Corinth. Paul stresses to the followers, to his, 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 his audience, that living for Jesus means that we should be of good courage. Therefore, since we are of good courage, we do not lose heart. These are words of encouragement that were meant to bring about hope, and they were no more meant to bring about hope to the original audience than they are meant to bring about hope and encouragement and affirmation and joy and peace to you and me right here, right now. So, let's quickly go to the book of 2 Corinthians, okay, let me give you a little bit of a background, and then we're going to take off, okay, I promise, all is going to be well. 2 Corinthians was actually Paul's fourth letter that he wrote to the Christians in the city of Corinth. Two of the letters were lost. In this letter, which was written in about A.D. 56, Paul addressed some of the issues that were going on in the Christian church, in the cosmopolitan, wealthy, international city of Corinth. It was a large city, a melting pot of nationalities and various religions and backgrounds, and Paul was addressing specific issues that the Christians there were facing. Now, one of the big deals that they were facing were these false teachers, these people who claimed to come in the name of Christ, and they would use just enough Scripture to get you to kind of bite, you know, to, to, to kind of hook you in. But, but then they, they, they discarded the gospel, or they, they took you in a different direction. They, they tweaked the truth of the gospel to meet their own needs. The Scripture talks about them tickling the ears of the general public. Now, these false teachers were incredibly well-liked. They were incredibly popular. After all, why wouldn't they be? They were telling the people exactly what they wanted to hear. So these false teachers declared that Paul and his teachings were wrong. They questioned Paul's authority. They questioned Paul's motives. So Paul was writing. He wanted to to, to write a letter to the Christians in Corinth to counter those who were bending the truth and to defend himself against the arguments that he was preaching poor theology. Okay, so this morning we're going to the book of 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. We're going to pick it up in uh, verse 6 and then we're going to go verse six, seven, eight and nine. okay? So this is what he writes. So we are always of good courage. We know that wh- that while we are at home in the body, We are away from the Lord, okay? Here's what he means by this, literally, that that if I'm walking around in this living, breathing body right now, then I'm not physically in heaven with God. As a believer, that's my goal, to end up in heaven with God. But because I'm living and I'm breathing and I'm living in this world right here, right now, I'm technically separated from that eternity that awaits me. But despite that, okay, we're not separated for long. How come? Well, the next verse tells us Paul writes for, okay, another translation of that word for in Greek is the word because, okay? So instead of saying for we walk by faith, not by sight, Paul is telling us, okay, you know what, you're not really separated from God. Because we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, he writes in verse 8, and we would rather be away from the body. In other words, I'd rather be away from here and with God physically, okay, to be at home with the Lord. But whether we are at home in the body, okay, or in, in heaven, or away in the body, we make it our aim to please God. Okay, at home refers to that eternal presence with God in heaven. Away still refers to our body, our presence here and now in this world. But he's saying that regardless of where we are, in heaven or here in this world, our goal is the same, and that is to please God. So, so Paul is writing about two different things here. Okay, we're at home in our human body, okay, therefore we are technically away from the Lord, but likewise when we physically Die. We're away from the human body, but we're physically with God forever, and that's great news to the early believers just as it is early or good news to us who are not early believers, those of us here and now today. So so Paul does dwell on in these verses about how what we believe should affect how we live our lives. If I truly believe in life after death and I believe in eternity with God in heaven, that should affect my outlook toward everything and anything that I face. Whether it's, it's, it's troubles, or rather, or whether it's adversity, or, or whether anything that we go through in this world. It certainly most affected Paul. His view of eternity affected the way that he viewed his problems, his critics, and his circumstances. So the knowledge and the assurance of that eternity with God... Okay, allowed him to live out a positive life even when things weren't positive in his life. Verse 7 sums it up. We walk by faith, not by sight. What does that mean? Let me first take you back to an aviation answer. One of the most basic tenets of Pilot training is the fact that you don't want to trust your instincts, but rather you want to trust your instruments, okay? That sounds so counterintuitive, okay? It seems unnerving because, let's face it, I, I trust my eyes, I trust my ears, I trust my brain, I trust my thought process, at least at times, okay? But besides, what if your instruments aren't right? What if your instruments are wrong, You have to trust your instruments. You see, under certain conditions, your eyes and your ears and your mind won't fully be able to understand all that's going on. They they won't be able to sense exactly how it is the plane is flying. When it's dark, for example, or or maybe there's a storm, or or when you can't see the, the distant horizon, your body gets somewhat discombobulated. You may think that you're flying level when, in fact, the plane might even be flying up. Down. It's referred to as spatial disorientation. Okay, that's not a theological word. It's not a Greek word. I don't even know what it is in Greek. Okay, it's just spatial disorientation. It's a condition in which a pilot's perception of reality is different from reality. On the evening of July 16, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. was flying his private plane From New York to Martha's Vineyard, many of you recall that fateful night. He was flying at night, it was dark, and he experienced that spatial disorientation. Okay, again, what does that mean? Well, as he left the bright lights of the big city behind him, he was flying over a dark ocean. There was no sight of the horizon to be seen. And at the moment, it felt like things were going perfectly in his mind, okay? He was right side up. The aircraft instruments were conveying, however, your wings are tilted steeply to the right The nose of the airplane is pointing down. Your airspeed is already howling way past the red line. So his instruments were telling him things are way off off base. Things are way out of norm. Things things are are just out of whack. But, But because it was dark and he couldn't see where the horizon was, things just seemed to be normal. In his mind, his senses were telling him something different that, yeah, Things are fine. So the only way that a pilot can overcome that spatial orientation is to do what? Is to trust your instrument more than your own intuition. And so pilots, they have those instruments. And as believers, we have something even more beneficial. The the, the Lord gives us his word, the scripture. What a powerful instrument that is. The Lord has given us the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, God's presence dwelling within us. What what a powerful instrument that is. The Lord has blessed us with a a healthy church in which we're surrounded by people who who love us, who are here for us, people who've, who've got our back, so to speak, people who will walk through us with whatever we walk through. What a powerful instrument that is. God promises his strength to those who trust in him. What a powerful instrument. But are you willing to trust your instruments? Are you willing to to, to fully place your trust in God? Or are you trying to take off under your own power? Are we living life by faith and not by sight? Or kind of the opposite where we're going by what we see and maybe we'll dabble in a little bit of faith here and there when it doesn't seem too uncomfortable. You see, in our Christian lives, we do face our own version of this spatial disorientation. Things may seem fine, but in actuality, they are quite far from fine. We, we often fall victim to the lies that the enemy wants us to believe about ourselves or lies about others. lies about our circumstances or maybe we fall victim to the lie that God doesn't care about us or that God can't take care of us or that God won't take care of us you see the Christian Life is about living by faith, not by sight. To, to understand how we're called to live by faith and to place our trust in God and His promises, and not to be motivated merely and simply by what we see and what we hear. It's a journey that can be mind-altering in a good way, a tremendous blessing and a reward. It's a journey that's exciting. It's life-changing. It can be mind-boggling. It's a journey that will allow you to see and experience God as he is meant to be seen and experienced in his fullness and in his grace what a powerful gift that is do we have faith in the promises of God do we truly believe what we talk about here on Sunday mornings do we truly believe in those things that we can't see or physically touch you see, most of the promises that God gives us are things that, that aren't literally tangible. Okay, so, so, so we can't physically touch them. We often can't even see them with our own eyes. I remember the Reverend Billy Graham once said, I have never seen the wind, but I have seen the effects of the wind. And as someone who's been in ministry for a long time, I've never heard the audible voice of God. But let me tell you, I have seen the tremendous life-changing, life-giving, and life-saving effects of a God who cares about you and who cares about me. Let me take you back many years ago. It was my first job in ministry. You've heard me talk about my career path a little bit when I was a TV sportscaster and I left that to take a job in youth ministry. And I was a a youth minister at a, a large church in Augusta, Georgia. Gay okay, Augusta, I spent several years there, a fun little town. I was single at the, 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 the time, didn't know anybody there, but I loved the church, I loved the people, I, I loved the community. But but I felt this restlessness inside, I, I knew that things were about to change. Why? Well, because I knew that while I enjoyed my time as a youth pastor, that God was going to call me to seminary. And I knew that being called to seminary meant that I would have to move somewhere. Now, a lot of my friends went to, to Emory or Candler Seminary here in Atlanta. I was, was single. I, I didn't have a lot of connections to Atlanta. And so I decided I was going to go to another seminary, two different seminaries I was considering one was in Orlando, Florida. That seems like a pretty cool place to go. The other was in a little town called Wilmore, Kentucky. Seemingly not so much of a, a cool little place to go. But I knew that it would be one or the other. The the pastors who had meant the most to me in my walk with Christ, the, the ministers who had mentored me the most, were, were pushing me in one of those two directions. And so I knew that it would, in fact, be one of those two directions. But there was this restlessness building up because I love. I loved where I was. I loved the job that I had. I would bought a house and I loved the neighborhood in which I lived. But I knew that God was about to call me to pack up, to leave, to move to another place, another state. I didn't know where, I didn't know which one, and I didn't even fully understand the logic of what was going to take place. So one night, this, this restlessness, this, this deep-rooted restlessness, maybe some of you have felt that before. I, I can't quite describe it, but it was so intense that, that I drove up to the church at 11 o'clock at night, My hands were even shaking because being in a church parking lot at 11 o'clock on a dark evening can be kind of scary. I opened the door to the sanctuary. It was a huge sanctuary. You talk about a scary place to be at night. That was a scary place to be at night. Uh, but, but I walked up the center aisle of the, the, the sanctuary, and, and we had an altar kind of where we have the stage up here, and, and there were little kneeling pads where people would come and they would take communion, or they could kneel and they could pray. And so I remember at a little bit after 11 o'clock, it was a Tuesday night, I went down, walked down the aisle, and I knelt in prayer. And this prayer was different than any other prayer I had prayed before. And I know this because I prayed, God, I will follow you wherever you send me, okay? I will be faithful and I will be obedient. I may not like it, I may not understand it, but I will follow you. You see, most of my prayers were were, were a little bit different than that. Most of my prayers consisted of me telling God what I was going to do and asking God to bless it. But but this prayer was totally different. And so I went up, and I literally just surrendered myself at this altar, and I said, God, I don't know what the future holds. I like where I am. I'd love to stay here for a while. But if you have other things in store for me, I am willing to follow. I prayed for maybe 15 minutes. I got up. I turned off the lights. I Locked up the church door, I went home, stayed up for a while, finally went to bed, got into the office at about 8.15 the next morning. And, and as I did, my, my phone was ringing in my office. Okay, I remember I had prayed, God, I know you're going to send me to one of two places, okay? Remember where they are? Orlando or Kentucky, okay? Remember that, that's, that's good to know. We're, 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 we're in sync here all as well. Okay, so, so I got to my office about 8.15... got a phone call it was from a pastor i i didn't know he said joe you don't know me but i read an article that you had written for a magazine As a journalism major, I love to do a lot of writing, and and I'd written for a a Christian magazine. It was a youth magazine specifically. And he said, we are doing a, a nationwide job search for our youth ministry position, and we're wondering if you would be willing to fly down to come talk about serving as our youth pastor. Okay, where are you guys located? They said, oh, we are located in Orlando, Florida. True story. Two days later, I was on a a flight to Orlando and had the job interview. I was offered the job right after the interview, moved down a a few years later, went to seminary, had a great time serving as the youth pastor at a a great church down there. Spent five years down there, even after seminary, just wanted to stay in youth ministry down there. But it reminds me of that time in my life, and, and I'll be honest with you, there are more times when this isn't the case. But it was a case in which I was living by faith and not by sight. I wasn't trying to get God to bless what I wanted to do. Rather, I wanted to do what God was already going to bless. When we talk about living by faith and not by sight, Jesus isn't saying you merely just go on out there and, and do whatever and throw caution to the wind. He, he gives us, in fact, this analogy of how to live your life when you're called to, to, to live by faith and not by sight. And in Luke 14, 28, Jesus says, For which of you desiring to build a tower, okay, you're going to build something, you're going to build a tower, you don't first sit down and count the cost, whether you have enough to complete it or not. In other words, biblical faith is not blind faith. Christian faith is ultimately about following Jesus, even though we can't see the results right now and right here with our physical eyes. Faith is about trusting God so deeply that it affects every crevice and every nook and cranny of our lives. It affects the way we love. It affects the way we see other people. Walking by faith, therefore, is not the same. It's just walking meanderously without planning. Okay, Walking by faith is not the same thing as walking blindly. We're simply following God's divine will instead of our own imperfect agendas and desires. Remember, going back to piloting, how can a a pilot overcome that spatial disorientation? Well, that's to trust the instruments. That's why flight instructors force student pilots to learn to, to fly the planes by the instruments alone. Likewise, friends, you and I have been called to walk by faith, not by sight. To trust in God's presence, to trust in God's promise, to carry us through no matter what we face. And even when the world seems to tell us one thing, we know that we can trust God for who God really is. How are you going to respond to the challenge to live by faith, and not by sight. If you weren't here last week, we, we gave away these little pilot wings. And if you weren't here last week, we invite you to come up maybe after worship and just take one. We're gonna get rid of them all. So if you see some, just take them, whether it's for yourself or or maybe for someone else. Another way in which we're called to respond is through our giving. God calls us to give, and on the screen you can see various ways that we do that. Giving is our response to God, saying, okay, God, you know what? This, this, this money stuff is pretty prized to me, but, but, but I trust you with it, and I know it's going to be used in a mighty way. So giving is also our response to God. Friends, I pray that as we leave this place here this morning, that you can truly believe that God has something mighty in store for you, that God has something that will blow your mind. Are you willing to take that journey? Are you willing even to take that first step of faith or that leap of faith maybe for some of us to pursue the things that God has in store for us? Or are we simply happy with what we've already got? Let's pray. Dear loving God, we thank you. We thank you for the amazing love that you have for us. And despite our shortcomings, despite our doubts and our questions, you never turn your back on us. And Lord, in this moment of stillness and silence, we invite the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts Exposing the things that you, God, want to change. You have bigger dreams and ambitions and goals than we ever could have for ourselves. And I pray that despite all of the distractions that we often encounter, we can focus on you. In what ways are we not fully walking by faith? May your power and presence bring about change so that we can fully live experience all that you have in store for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.